It is a super day, isn't it, Pastor? It is, and I tell you, that song (laughs) hits right at the point of the sermon. It really is about acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with our God. Now, I am preaching on the four cardinal virtues, and next week I conclude the series with temperance on Mardi Gras Sunday, right before Lundy Gras and Mardi Gras. I'm going to talk to you about temperance. These are four virtues that any person can practice. They are virtues that are shared by all humans, as we illustrated with courage last week. All societies and cultures applaud courage and scorn cowardice. So they're not uniquely Christian, and yet... Jesus Christ illustrates each one of them in such a tremendous way, with such power. And so today I want to talk about justice, and I really want us to be filled up and sent out. Because sitting right there in the pew, it is hard to be just. Justice happens between you and another person. So this really is a call to action. And everybody in the room will have applications for the virtue of justice almost immediately as you begin to interact with people. There's nowhere we we care more about justice than on the sports field. They had better be fair today in the Superdome, right? If those referees are not just, we're going to call down fire on them. Everybody in the room. There, on the sporting field, we want the playing field level. We don't want the referees to show favoritism. And we need to translate that intense desire for a level playing field in the sporting arena to a level playing field in life. We need to be people who are just if we're going to follow Jesus and be like him. We are Jesus people. And I'm going to illustrate justice from a story in John chapter 8, which most of you will have a notation in your Bible about, not included in most of the ancient manuscripts, and yet in all of our uh, translations of the Bible. And so I am preaching from that passage as the authoritative Word of God, beginning in really with the last verse of chapter 7. And to give you a context for this, the Feast of Tabernacles is going on in Jerusalem. It's a big feast, maybe sort of like Mardi Gras. Everybody shows up in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a great thing for the kids. It commemorates the wandering in the wilderness. They build booths with leafy boughs. Some of them, if they choose to, sleep outside in those booths throughout the week. There's lots of feasting. It's a family event. Everybody gathers in Jerusalem for it. 
Jesus' brothers, who really do not yet believe in him, are goading him a little bit about the Feast of Tabernacles this year because they think, you know, if you're going to be a public figure and really in a public eye, you need to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, do your miracles there so everybody can see you. And they kind of have their tongue in their cheek. Because John immediately says when they encourage Jesus to do that, they haven't yet believed in him. So his brothers are sort of, Jesus says no, and his brothers go on to the Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus comes later secretly, and then appears teaching in the temple courts. And the crowds begin to gather when they realize Jesus is teaching in the temple courts until in the last day, Jesus stands up and John records, he says, in the middle of the temple courts, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Jesus announces this in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles in a packed temple court. Well, they all go home, and verse 1 of chapter 8, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I have four simple things about justice that are the pegs on which I will hang my thoughts this morning. The first one is crowded planet. Crowded planet. Jesus is 
from Galilee, a little town called Nazareth. He is used to walking through the fields in the rural spaces and enjoying the flowers and the birds, and he often talked about them. He walked by the Sea of Galilee and saw the fishermen. Galilee was rural Israel. And those folks in Judea really didn't consider Galileans too seriously. They were the country hicks. In fact, you could tell a Galilean by his accent. It gave Peter away on the night Jesus was betrayed. They heard him talk and said, well, you're from Galilee. Your speech betrays you. When the authorities decided that the disciples were uneducated and ignorant men, part of that was they're from Galilee. And in chapter 7, when Jesus comes from Galilee, Galilee to Judea and begins to teach these huge crowds in the temple, a debate arises about who he really is. And part of the discussion is, Galilee, he's from Galilee. We know where he's from. No prophet comes from Galilee. They despise the rural Galilean. They're in the big metropolis of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is not only the big metropolis in Israel, but now it is packed with people. And people have come from all over the place for this feast. And you know, people do in the big city on feast days what they would never do back home where everybody knows them. That happens right here in our city all the time. And so they catch this person in adultery during the feast in the big city. Say, if you were by yourself on this planet, I wouldn't have to talk to you about justice. It wouldn't have to be part of the virtue you develop in your life. If you were all by yourself, the most challenging ethical question you would have is, how can I use these things around me to achieve noble ends? How do I use these things around me to achieve the goals that are best for my life? That would be the only ethical question you would have if you were by yourself on the planet. But you're not by yourself on the planet. You live in families and neighborhoods and communities. And justice kicks in when people who have their own individual rights come into your space. Justice is how you determine in your heart and with your will that you will do what is right by every person in your space. That you will deliver justice to them you will do what is right prudence and temperance keep you from allowing that strongest desire in your life to consume the rest of you the thing you know that if you let it go unleashed it'll ruin your life it'll gobble your whole life up that desire in you that you know just craves more and more if you're prudent and if you're temperate. If those virtues are in you, 
You restrain the longing that will suck the life out of you and you know it. Justice does that for the group. Justice is the virtue that restrains one individual from consuming what belongs to the group. When a single solitary individual walks into the perimeter of your life, you now share the air with them. And you can't have all of it. You can't have all the air and all the water. You as an individual, if you live in a community. So while prudence and temperance restrain the individual desire that seeks to consume the rest of the individual, justice restrains the individual from consuming all that belongs to the group. So you have a crowded planet, lots of people around you, and your rights overlap with one another. The 49ers are in town. They are named after those bold young men, go west, young man, go west, who heard the call and saw the great frontier and thought that they would go to California and find their fortune. If you go to California now to find your fortune... You will not find there an unpopulated wasteland of mountains and valleys. Los Angeles is now 18 million people. So even if you were the frontier person going west, when you get there now, you must consider the person who lives downstream from your dumping ground, who lives close enough to hear your jam box and close enough to smell your cesspool. When you live by yourself, maybe you don't have to consider those things. Justice is the virtue that helps you live with others. Crowded planet. The more people you pack together, sometimes the more difficult it is to monitor the rights of each individual and protect them. Cultivate justice in your life. Think about the people who are around you who must listen to your noise and experience what you experience. Demanding your rights is one thing. Infringing on the rights of another is something else. And then the second peg I want you to think about is distant person. Crowded planet, distant person. Love kicks in when we talk about the people with whom you are intimate. You know them well and they are like you. And when you think about the people you fervently love, many of them are in that circle that is very near to you. And dear to you, they're part of your family. They're part of your group. Justice is what you render to the person who is not only near but far, who maybe you never heard of before, who is unlike you, 
Not in your group, maybe. Not in your family. But they have rights, too. They bring this woman to Jesus. We do not know her name. Her name is irrelevant to her accusers. They don't care what her name is. Ultimately, I don't know if they care what happens to her. They're not particularly intent on dealing out the penalty. She is simply a means to an end. They will set her in the middle of this group. They will tell the whole group, she is an adulterer, she was caught in the act. She will stand there humiliated before the whole crowd, and they do not care how she feels. She is not important to them. They are using her like somebody would use a tool, a pair of pliers or scissors. They're going to use her to elicit a response from Jesus. They are triangulating this person, in other words. They're not relating to her directly. They're using her in a triangle. We're going to use you to get to him. That is wrong. Never use people as a means to an end. It's not fair. It's not just. They have rights too. They are people of dignity and worth, and they're not there for you to use, no matter how badly you want to. And if you catch yourself using somebody for your own purposes and goals and ambitions, then you pull back and say, God, forgive me. Help me to treat that person as a person of full worth and dignity and equally honorable with me. If Jesus taught us anything, it's that you're to love your neighbor and care for your brother and be distinguished by this bond of love and friendship and caring. And you are not to use them as means to an end. When I get on the computer sometimes, I have to type in these fuzzy letters you look at. You know why you have to do that? Type in this little box of letters and numbers, and they're all kind of askew. The computer wants to make sure that you're human and not a machine. Machines can read numbers that are built as usual, but it's harder for them when the numbers and letters are different sizes and different shapes and lean in different ways. So to authenticate your humanity, you have to type in the numbers. I wish we had a test to let us know when we're treating people like machines. When we've forgotten that they're mothers and daughters and brothers and sisters. And we started using them for our own purposes. Jesus loves this woman, converses with this woman, forgives this woman. Women were never like cattle or tools or things. 
to Jesus. This is typical rabbi style. They thought women were incapable of processing information. So they didn't include them in their classes or in their teaching groups. The disciples are startled when they come upon Jesus talking to a woman from Samaria. They thought, have you lost your mind? What are you doing? Today in this town, women will be bought and sold like so much meat in a market. Not only in live performances, but in pornography. The terrible thing about pornography is it reduces women to things to be used. It takes away their humanity. You want to be less human yourself? Treat another human being like he or she is a thing. And your humanity will ebb out of your heart. You watch Jesus as he relates to this woman and to others. And you know he values them highly and loves them dearly. And they follow him and become his disciples because he cares about them. That distant person, that person so unlike you, not your color, not your creed, not your language, out of your group, out of your culture, that person deserves your full respect and the dignity afforded every individual. That's what justice is. And justice most commonly applies to those who have the least power in a community or a family or a city. So the scripture talks about the third peg, principalities and powers. I think that these religious authorities represent the arche and exousia, the principalities and powers there in Judea of that time. These are powerful people who teach others, who bring this woman before Jesus. Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, it's not as if in New Orleans our struggle is against flesh and blood. He says, no, it's against principalities and powers. And then he says, it's against the ruler of the darkness of this world. And then he says, our struggle is against spiritual wickedness in high places. And I am confident that refers to Satan who is the prince of the power of the air, that we are wrestling against personal and powerful evil in the world. But I am also confident 
that the principalities and powers include wicked people in high places. People who have forgotten justice, forgotten to love mercy, and are now in their power abusing others for their own sake and consuming them for their own sake. This woman is taken to Jesus by these powerful people and humiliated in the crowd. Anytime you develop power over another human being, you have authority over that person. You are to that extent more accountable to the God who made you. To whom much is given, much is required. I'm not saying that doing justice in your office where you are the manager or where you are the boss in your business, that doing justice is easy. It's not. It's often difficult to ascertain what really happened and what is the right thing to do. But a person who's cultivating justice, who wants to be like the Lord Jesus, is determined in their heart, day after day, week after week, and year after year, to deliver on this virtue of justice, because that pleases God. And God, who is just, also wants his disciples to act justly. And so we who garner some authority to ourselves need to watch ourselves even more so that we do not abuse that authority toward any individual under our care. That goes for dads and moms with children in the family as well as all other social structures. Now let me say something else to you, okay? Sometimes you don't want to wrestle against the principalities and powers. Sometimes you don't want in that fight. You want to walk away from that fight. You've got enough personal problems on your own. You don't want to deal with the structures of which you are a part that may be abusing or misusing individuals within it. But brothers and sisters, I want to say now to you, We're asking the Lord to fill us up and send us out into a community where often injustice occurs. It is our duty, responsibility, and privilege as a follower of Jesus Christ to work justice out there in the larger setting of which we are a part. We do not want to abandon, in other words, the principalities and powers and leave them without a gospel witness. Instead, wherever we are embedded in the structure, whether it is corporate, educational, whatever it might be, there we work for justice with all our might. We have a situation now going on in our city that grieves me, and I think about it every day. You know what it is? It's when we deploy our civil authorities who work on our behalf to go to a home in the middle of the night where there's been some terrible thing happen, and those authorities on our behalf remove minor children from that home. What do they do with those kids on our behalf? 
so that we might all be safe. They remove. They put him in the foster care system. Somebody told me this week that 65% of the prisoners in OPP have at one time or another been in the foster care system. Do you know that little children whom our representatives remove from homes sometimes sit on the floor in an office for hours until the wee hours of the morning, listening to someone talking the phone, trying to find them a place. That system is not working for the children that are taken into its care. Not only here, but around the country, the foster care system is struggling just to keep its head above water. I am grateful that we are seeking to minister to foster children and help with that ministry. But I wonder at a community that allows the littlest ones to be in such need. Wouldn't it be wonderful if Christian people, God's people, by the dozens and hundreds and thousands in this state said, we will step up to take care of these little ones who through no fault of their own end up as wards of the state. We used to have a children's home up in Louisiana in, in, in Monroe, and we still do in fact, but we can't have group homes anymore. Did you know that they are illegal now? You can't do a group home. You can only do a private residence for foster care. Fill us up. Send us out, Lord. What do you want me to do? Do I have a role in this? Can I help with this need that is happening in my community? I am grateful that we have a ministry to 200 kids in the public school system that the teachers and social workers know are hungry when they come to school Monday morning. And so on Friday, we send them home with food. That's not benevolence. That's justice. You say, why is that justice? Because it's just dead wrong for a little kid, a girl or boy, through no fault of their own, to go to bed hungry in a community with lavishly prepared, overflowing banquet tables full of food. That's, don't you agree? That's wrong. We got to fix that. We got to do something about that. And I'm not saying, hey, government, help us out. I'm saying, hey, God's people, there's some little biddies in our city that need our help. And what happens to them just isn't right, it's not just. So let's redouble our efforts to care for the smallest ones that we might honor our Lord who said, bring the little children to me 
and do not refuse them. That brings me to the fourth peg, the Jesus principle. These religious teachers are not really interested in learning from Jesus. He's a country hick from Galilee, after all, and no prophet comes from Galilee. But they are interested in incarcerating him, if they can, maybe eliminating him. They really want to kill him. So they bring this woman, throw him in front of Jesus, use her as a thing to get to an end. And when they have him, when they have set this scene, they say, in the law, Moses says, stone women like this. Jesus, what do you say? I think that's a good question, even though it comes from pretty bad people. It's a good question to ask. Jesus, what do you say? What about this, Jesus? What would you do? What would Jesus do? Followers of his have been asking that question for generations. And we have learned as we've watched Jesus that he acts justly, loves mercy, and walks humbly with the Father. Jesus stoops down and writes in the sand and does not immediately answer those teachers, those Pharisees who asked the question, what do you say? He pauses for a minute and he writes in the sand. They keep questioning him. They keep prodding him. I think they're thinking in their minds, you know, we got him now. He doesn't know what to say. Come on, Jesus. Come on, Jesus. Give an answer. And then Jesus makes that famous statement. He just straightens up and says, if anyone is without sin, let him cast the first stone at her. And it's interesting how John records what unfolds then. They're like, and then one by one, when Jesus puts it like that, a backpedal. And they retreat from the scene they have created. They made this mess. Now they're leaving. And it's interesting, John says, the older ones left first. I hope so. I hope the older ones have the keenest sense of what is right and true and good. The older ones have the keenest sense of their own failure and sinful condition. Sometimes I look at myself now that I'm the old one of the older ones. And I say, how, can, how long, how can you live on the planet this long and be the mess you are? You think by now you'd have got it cleaned up. Now, I think when he asked the question, he was without sin, let him catch the first stone, I think the older one's kind of, all right. We know about that. They leave. The younger ones see him leave. 
until everybody's gone except Jesus and the woman. Jesus has two questions for the woman. One she answers, the other she doesn't. Jesus says to her when he straightens up, where have they gone? She does not reply to that question. She doesn't know where they've gone. She could have launched into a speech about those guys, how unjustly she'd been treated. Where's the man who was her consort? She could have done that, but she didn't. She doesn't respond. Where have they gone? And then Jesus asks, does no one condemn you? And to that, she says politely and with reverence, no one, sir. I think she remained before Jesus because in her heart, she wanted to know his verdict too. I want you to know his verdict. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He says that so plainly. The Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world. But what? That the world through him might be saved. How do you save this woman who lives a life of sin? You let the mercy and grace and love of God flow out to her. I think when Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee, implicit in his remark is, I forgive you. You say, well, why would he do that? He has authority on earth to forgive sin. He forgave the fellow on the pallet, do you remember? Your sins are forgiven, he said. And then he said, go and leave your life of sin. There is the call to repent and the call to be holy, to be just, to leave the life of sin and live the life you were called to life, to live as a servant of God and a follower of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, I know when we preach on holiness, images pop up in our mind and heart and sometimes we feel so dirty and ugly and so far from the standard that God has called us to. We look in our lives and we see greed and pride and lust and sloth. And we think, how can God love somebody who's got it all wrong like I do? It is in that moment when you feel your unworthiness that you were prepared to receive the forgiveness he offers. And knowing that in yourself you fail. And you need a Savior. You need someone to rescue you. Your Savior is Jesus. He wants to rescue you. If you will confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you are ready to receive Him as Savior, you can do so today. And have a clean life and a clean slate. And put away the sin, the, the guilt, the shame associated with 
that unholy living, all of it gone, and a new life in Christ. Bow with me, please. Lord, we pray today that you would speak by your Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin, help us to see ourselves the way you see us, and to know how desperately we need a Savior, God. Thank you for Jesus, who loves us so much that he gave his one and only Son, that he, laid, he gave his life upon the cross. Lord, we pray that you will help us now to give a positive answer to the work that you did for us. Through Christ our Lord, amen.